Well, we are getting fully into the Christmas season here at our church. You probably are in your lives as well. And so I've been uh, fast working on some new Christmas messages, if you will. I've been studying the Gospel of John over the last, uh, really over the last year in preparation for some series that I'm going to do out of John over the next few years. And, and we begin the first one for just the next three weeks here at our church as we lead up to Christmas. So I, I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to be blessed. I, I consider it an honor in my life that I get to study the Bible for a living and then, and then preach to you all. I mean, honestly, I just think, you know, uh, it, it really is an amazing thing that I get the opportunity to do that. And so let's bow right now and pray as our venues and our campuses join us as well. Father, uh, I thank you for worship. I thank you that preceding our time in the Word, we get a, an opportunity to sing to you, to be sung to, to interact with each other in such a way that we uh, come together as the body of Christ and in unison uh, focus our minds and our hearts upon you. And so I pray, God, that the result of that would be that now, Lord, we'd be prepared to have an intelligent and hopefully inspirational discussion on who you are and uh, what our lives are about and how the two can come together. So I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when you think about it, much of life is understood and lived out by you doing something on a daily level that you might not know that you're doing, but I'm telling you, you do. And it's a twofold pattern of discovering reality and then responding accordingly. And so if you can grab onto two words right now, you're going to get this, reality and response. I find that uh, almost universal to the human condition is that we strive to discover and understand realities around us, and then the way we make life work is that we respond based on these realities. So what am I talking about? Well, for instance, most of us have discovered that this reality, that we need money and resources to have a satisfactory standard of living. You learned very early on through whatever way that money was important in this world, resources are, and so as a response to this, you have gotten a job, you have saved, you have invested, you've done whatever you can to secure some security. So simply notice what you've done. You've discovered a reality, a truism about this world, and then you've responded to make it work. Another example, a reality is, is that most of us have discovered that we aren't meant to be islands relationally, that though it's tempting at times to pull away from others, that life is meant to be done in relationship, companionship, friendship, even marriage, and so look at your life, you've responded to that reality accordingly. You've sought out friends, you've sought out a life partner, maybe you're still in the process of that. Again, it's a reality that you've discovered and you're responding to it. I'm telling you, this is how we live. It's all over the place. Reality, we all need food. Response, we eat. Reality, education makes you more learned and maybe even more wise. Response, you go to school and get a degree. Reality, the Arizona summer sun is really hot. And it can hurt you if you stay in it too long. Response, stay in the shade or better yet, leave town for the summer, which many of you tend to do. See, reality and response. I even live this in my daily life. Reality, the Cleveland Browns have never, ever played in a Super Bowl championship. That's a reality. 
Uh, over 50 years, the Cleveland Browns are one of only four teams that have never, ever been to the Super Bowl, let alone won one. So what's our response? Romans 4, verse 18. In hope against all hope, Abraham believed. It's the theme verse of a Cleveland Browns fan. You get the idea. Most of us live life in such a way, you'll see where we're going with this in just a second, that we work hard to discover realities around us. Sometimes they are universal, uh, transcendent realities, meaning they're true for everybody. Sometimes they're just personal things that we believe are true. But they're realities nonetheless, and then we respond, and that's how we make life work. It's universal to the human condition, and we do this physically, relationally, culturally, this idea of discovering reality and responding to it. And the reason that this is so important is because when it comes to your spiritual life, here's the deal. It's no different. You see, God, who made us and loves us, has created the spiritual life, the life of the soul, to function according to this same reality response motif that we use in every other area of life. What he wants us to do here on earth is spend our time discovering and understanding realities about him and the spiritual world and then responding, adjusting our lives accordingly. And this is why, by the way, God has seen fit to give us the Bible, his authoritative and inspired word to us, and then to give each of us sharp and inquisitive minds that can understand the Bible, even by the power of his Holy Spirit. The spiritual life, don't miss this, functions under the same reality response pattern that you use in every other area of your life. It's just that we do have to apply it. So as we enter into the Christmas season, what I want to do today, and I think you're going to like this, is take a look at a couple of overriding core spiritual realities, specifically having to do with who Jesus is and then who we are, and then look at what our response should be. Because I'm telling you, most of our lives would be much less complicated and much more fulfilling if we would honor this reality response thing that we do in every other area of our life in our spiritual lives. So let's do that today. And here is the first of two realities that we need to recognize and honor as we enter into this Christmas season. And it involves the nature of Jesus and it's very confusing to many people in our world because they don't understand who Jesus was and is, here's the reality that the Gospel of John is going to reveal. And that is that he is the preexistent creator God. Let me repeat that. In all reality, who is Jesus? He is the preexistent creator God. Now, what do we mean by that? I want you to look at how the Gospel of John <clears throat> begins its discussion on spiritual reality. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, verse 14, which we're going to read later, tells us that this word here is none other than the historical Jesus of Nazareth. So equate Jesus with the word here, because it tells us that in verse 14. And what are the stated realities of this Jesus? 
Well, first, notice that it's telling us he is preexistent. In other words, he existed before all time and creation. It says there in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And again, we're going to learn the Word is Jesus. Let me ask you from your Sunday school days, if you guys went to Sunday school, uh, anybody know what other book of the Bible begins with the three words, in the beginning? What book is it, Howard? Book of Genesis, absolutely. So the very, very first book in the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, and then, as you guys know, goes on to talk about creation. Is it a coincidence that John, thousands of years later, is writing his gospel about Jesus, and he begins it with the same three words that the book of Genesis does? In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, book of Genesis, God created. He's linking the two here, linking Jesus, don't miss this, to the beginning of it all. And then he clarifies it even more when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In other words, whatever this Word is going to be revealed as, he's saying that this Word is eternal. He was with God and in the beginning. So it's an eternal thing going on here, preexistent before all of existence. As Paul the Apostle would sum up here in Colossians 1 verse 17, he says, And he, Jesus, is before all things. In him all things hold together. So simply notice here that what the Bible is telling us about Jesus' nature is that he wasn't just some human being, just some religious leader who taught some really wonderful things about God, though he is all of that. No, he's much more than that that he's the eternal word, the Greek word logos, of God that is pre-existent, existing for all time. And then to be sure, we see secondly about his nature, that he is the creator of all. Verse 3 goes on to say, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So as the pre-existent one, now don't miss this, it then tells us that all existence came about through him. Now, that's philosophically heavy. Uh, That word made here in verse 3 literally means to come into being, referring to the actual act of creation. So however creation came into being, it's telling us that this eternal preexistent word is the agent of all the things that finally came into existence. So he wasn't just with God in the beginning. He was the agent of all creation. And then the reason that he can be preexistent, the reason that he can be the agent of all creation, follow how people would have thought back then. Like they're thinking, okay, this word is preexistent. This word was the creator. I mean, only God really fits that bill. So sure enough, John goes on to say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Say it with me. And the word was God. There's been a lot of debate over the years by some offshoots of Christianity of whether John 1 verse 1 here is really saying that Jesus was God. In fact, there's some Christian, not denominations, but offshoots that have inserted a little A here where where they say, and the word was a God, kind of suggesting maybe Jesus wasn't the God. It it really is rather inarguable here when you look at the Greek. Uh, In the Greek here, it's the Greek word theos, which is the Greek word for God. And John had a choice. He could have either used theos as a noun or theos as an adjective. 
And John does use, many biblical writers use theos as an adjective. An adjective, as you know, modifies a noun. So again, I'll pick on Howard here in the first row. If I wanted to say Howard is a godly man, he's a godlike man, he has some godly qualities, I would use the word, Greek word theos as an adjective to describe him. But I wouldn't be saying that he's God. The only way I could say that Howard is God would be to use theos as a noun to say Howard is God, which would be heresy. We wouldn't want to say that. But that's exactly what John says about Jesus. He uses theos there as a noun. He is God, being very, very clear on the nature of Jesus, which is why, which is for another sermon, we formulate the theology of the Trinity, that you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three different persons, but all one God. And so John is not just saying here that, again, he's some uh, you know, wonderful religious human being. He's telling us something about the nature of Jesus. So add all this up. He's the preexistent one, existing before all things, eternal in nature. He's the agent of all of creation. And what this means is that he's nothing short of God himself. This is the stated reality of who Jesus is. And then verse 4 is very interesting. Look at verse 4. It says, And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So all of our life, commentators point out that it's referring to life in the broadest sense of the word. Your relational life, your personal life, your work life, your spiritual life. All of life is somehow bound up, now don't miss this, in this reality of who Jesus is. Now, we're going to get to what that means here in just a few minutes. I want you to hang on to that. But before we put this together by looking at what our response should be about the stated reality of who Jesus is, we need to explore one more stated reality that John would lead us right into here as we move into verse 5. And it has to do not with Jesus this time, but with you and me. It's the reality of the nature of humankind. And John tells us that humankind is simultaneously created and hence loved by God, but then also fallen and separated from God. This is going to be really important for us as we look at what our response should be. Now, we know that we are created and massively loved by God because as we just saw, Jesus is the agent of all of creation. And verse 10 would also affirm this when it says again, and I quote, the world was made through him. You and I are included in that. We were made by and through God, even by and through Jesus. And you've all heard the phrase over the years, God has made you and God doesn't make any junk. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase. Just about every one of us. Sometimes Christians have a problem with that phrase. They don't like it. They see it as kind of shallow or trying to escape the idea of sin or whatever. I, I think it's actually an accurate phrase in, in and of itself. I, I mean, think about it. Who's going to argue as a, as a theologian with the fact that God has made us? Give me a yes that you guys understand that, right? God has made us and that God would be incapable of making junk. Amen? He, he would. But here's where we do err on that. Think about this philosophically with me. It is true that God has made us and it is true that God doesn't make any junk. However, God also, it's possible that what God has made that was originally good can become junky over time. That's possible, right? And sure enough, that's what the Bible says. 
In the book of Genesis chapter 1, it says that when God created humankind, he said it was very good. Man, that's a kudos to God's created power and us. But then you read two chapters later, oops, uh, humankind took what was very good and messed things up pretty significantly. And and so notice how John's going to communicate this to us. Look at verse 5. It says, the light, Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Focus on that twice-repeated word, darkness. It's actually a very fascinating word. It's the Greek word skotia. It only appears about 17 times in the New Testament, but get this, 14 times in the Gospel of John. It's one of his favorite words, darkness. And when you look closely at the uses of this word, again in John, and then the three uses outside of John, what you realize is that it connotes two overriding things about our nature And though this is going to be hard to discuss for some of us, we need to. You'll see why in a minute here. And that's that darkness connotes evil and secrecy. That's what darkness is about. Things that we do that are not commensurate with the nature and goodness of God. Can you own that at all here this morning? That we all do things that would go against the nature and goodness of God. And when we do, and I know you're going to own this, you tend to want to hide. That's darkness. Uh, look at John, uh, uh, John 3, verse 19. Jesus is speaking, and he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness, scotia, rather than light. Why? Because their works were evil. So there's a rebellion theme going on here, rebellion against the very nature of God and his goodness. Uh, and then look at Matthew 10, verses 26 and 27. Again, Jesus is speaking. <coughs> He says, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, scotia, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So again, this idea of darkness as a place to hide, a place to try to not be found out. And then Matthew 4, verse 16, is kind of the nail in the coffin here, no pun intended. It says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. The reason I share that verse with you is not only is it scotia again, but it says that we dwell in darkness. There's something about our nature that wants to live there. There's something wrong with humankind that has made this world dark, and that something, by the way, is sin, the sin that lives inside of each and every one of us, this innate tendency we have to go the wrong way, to make bonehead, immoral decisions, and then not even own them, but want to hide in them. And again, I know it's hard to swallow for some of us, but I'm telling you, if you don't understand this aspect of your nature, you're never going to understand the response that God is looking for in you. And I think we've done great injustice to the world around us by not sometimes being a little bit more clear about what the Bible says about our nature and this idea of darkness, secrecy, evil, and even sin. This week I had, a, I had, had numerous uh, appointments with people who were in need. Christmas seems to bring that out in people, so I always try to leave my schedule free to do my part. And as I was meeting uh, in more than one occasion with people, and they're trying to make sense of whether it's a struggling marriage or a rebellious kid or, or even things going on in their lives, uh, invariably somebody will say to me on a regular basis, and you've heard this too, I don't understand why so-and-so did what they did. They know better. They know they shouldn't do that. 
And though I don't say it in the moment, I think to myself, well, I can give you a really clear theological answer why they did what they did. Because there's something inside of them that even though they don't, even though they know better, they don't always do the things that they know to do. And sometimes even the things that they don't want to do, they end up doing. And here's where it really gets thick. You do the same thing. It's just that when we do it in our own lives, it's somehow a little bit more excusable. Amen? And that's why we look at our neighbors and I can't believe they did that. And then we go out and do something and somebody looks up and says, I can't believe you did that. We're pointing all these fingers at each other. Well, it just shows the, the, the thing the Bible's saying and that all of us have some darkness in our lives. And in the darkness, we want to hide. Now, here's the real bummer. We're not done yet. John's not done on his discussion of our nature. Because as a result of this darkness, but this is going to be very life-giving, look at how verses 10 and 11 go on to further describe certain things about our nature. It says, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. Here it is. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Don't miss this, guys. As a result of our fallenness, our darkness, the Bible makes clear that from birth, we don't know him. That's why I say in our nature discussion here, we're created in love, but we are fallen and separated. That we don't know him. And know, by the way, doesn't mean just knowing intellectually. It means to know personally. It's a Greek word, gnosko, to know someone intimately and by experience. So when I say that I know my three kids, Hannah, Abby, and Paul, I don't mean that I know certain things about them, though I do. It means that I know them. I'm their dad. I know their temperaments. I know their idiosyncrasies. I know their dash dreams. I know their hopes. As much as they reveal themselves to me, and good families do, I know them. And what the Bible is saying here and in numerous other places is that because of our darkness, now don't miss this, we don't know him from birth. In our fallenness, we are separated from him. And this is why many of us, when we get honest, admit that there comes a point in our life where we say, I really don't think I know God. I, I, as a pastor, I'm in the habit of, of constantly asking people um, in normal discussion, hey, when did you uh, become a Christian? Or when did you come home to Christ? Or, you know, when did you find Jesus? However I might ask it. And, and once in a while, I'll have somebody say to me, in fact, it happens more often uh, than, than I would like, they'll say to me, oh, I've always known him. I've always believed and though I know what they mean by that, it means they were probably raised in some Presbyterian environment where they uh, were raised to know Jesus from when they were little guys and gals and baptized early, and I, and I really believe all that. In fact, I've raised my kids very similarly. Um, technically speaking, when they say that to me, that they've always believed, that they've always known him, I think to myself, technically that's not correct, that though you might not be able to give the time and date when you came to Christ, and we'll talk about that in a minute because that's legit, the reality is you need to own the fact that you didn't always know him. Why? Because you'll never understand the gospel until you understand how separated, at least at one time, and, now, and some of you still now, are from him. Until you understand your sin, until you understand your fallenness, you're never going to sense your need for a savior. And it's core to these two stated realities. So what are we to do with this? You got two foundational realities of the spiritual world. The nature of Jesus, pre-existent creator God who loves you more than you could ever realize and in whom all life is to be found. 
And then the nature of us, created in love but fallen and separated. What should our response be to these two realities? And here it is. This is the point of it all. It's the response God is looking for from you and from me. And it's how we need to begin our Christmas discussion here at our church. And that is to realize that God in Jesus has come for you. Let me pause right there and repeat that because there's no better news I can give you. God in Jesus has come for you so that you might receive him into your life. Now, what are we talking about? Folks, I want you to look at how this portion of, of Scripture here, um, go, or let me where I'm at here, yeah, it wraps up. It, it's glorious and life-changing and eternity-altering all at once. Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a lot going on just in these three verses here. You've got grace, truth, glory, belief, will of man, children of God. I mean, I could do an entire series on just these verses here. But for the sake of time here today, I want you to notice two overriding things that have everything to do with our response to the stated realities that we just looked at. First, notice that it tells us here that God became a man in the person of Jesus. It's what theologians call the incarnation. It comes from the Latin incarno. In means in. Carno means carnal or fleshly. So the word incarnation means to be made flesh. And that's the best stab that we have in describing what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago. I mean, think about it. It only makes sense. That if it is true, the stated reality, that he is the preexistent Logos or Word of God, who is the creator of all and very God himself, then in order for him to show up as a man, something had to happen, right? And the best way we explain this is through the incarnation. God inhabited a human form. Jesus is God come to earth. And that's why you have a virgin birth through the Virgin Mary and the story at Christmas and all the things that we celebrate here. It's celebrating one main thing. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This eternal preexistent word. And we have seen his glory. It's referring to the fact that again, in Jesus, he became a person. God did. And so maybe now, all the other phrases, just to be sure, that we see before verse 14 now make sense. So like in verse 5, when it says the light shines in the darkness. What's that about? Well, the light, the eternal word of God, is now shining because he's here in the flesh. Or how about verse 9? The true light is coming into the world. What do you mean the true light? Well, the true light from all of creation, the word of God, is coming into the world. Or how about verse 10? He was in the world. He came to his own. Again, he became a human being his own into this world. These are all glaring hints at this idea of incarnation, God becoming flesh. And the reason that God became flesh would become inarguably clear 33 years after this in Jesus's life. We celebrated as Good Friday and Easter because at the age of 33, after being on this earth as a human being for 33 years, Jesus went to the cross died on that cross, 
And the scriptures give give us a peek behind the scene and tell us that when Jesus was dying there, all the sins of the world, remember the darkness thing, that's why we have to talk about darkness, all the sins of the world were being placed on Jesus. So that forgiveness and a new chance at life, again, in him was life, to go from darkness into light might be a reality now for us. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, which is Easter to show his power over sin and death. Don't miss this, guys. The reason the incarnation happened was to bridge the two overriding spiritual realities, the preexistent creator God who loves us, but us with a darkened, fallen, separated nature, and God did it by coming into this world and being our sin bearer so that through him, we would have a chance at life. And this is why it is so important that when you and I have any intelligent discussion about Jesus or why we're having this discussion today, that we understand our sinful nature and the fact that the core of the gospel is about Jesus coming to forgive us. It's all about sin and salvation, fallenness and forgiveness, us going our own way and God showing us grace. And any discussion about Jesus that doesn't touch those realities, I'm telling you, you're just playing games. And it's why today is so important as we discuss Christmas that we focus laser beam precision on what the gospel is about and why Jesus is so important to you. I know it would only drive me nuts, but as a a pastor, I go to a lot of Christian events, and at many Christian events, I hear people present Jesus to to those around them, especially in cultural contexts where maybe they don't know him. And more often than not, because this is epidemic in American Christianity, I I hear people present Jesus as kind of a salesman approach, and and they essentially say, you know, uh, Jesus entered my life, and and, and when he did, he he, he helped me with my depression, and and he helped my failing marriage, and and he helped me, you know, with my rebellious kids, and and he helped me be a better businessman, and so you should accept Jesus as well. That's how I hear many times we present Jesus to people. Now listen very carefully. It is true that many times, because he cares about your whole life, that when you accept Jesus, he'll help you with your marriage, and that he might help you have semi-godly kids, or he might help you with your finances, or help you in your depression or your anxiety, because God loves you, and he addresses those issues in our lives. But listen, folks, none of those are the core of the gospel. Do we all understand that? None of those are. Any discussion about Jesus that doesn't focus on the fact that we are sinners in need of grace, people who are facing a Christless eternity, if something is not done, because we're dwelling in darkness and we have a perfect creator God who loves us, any discussion that doesn't bridge those two things has failed to understand the gospel. Plus, I can't have good integrity be up here today telling you that if you accept Jesus, he's going to save your marriage. Or he's going to make your kids turn out well. Or he's going to get you rich. Or he's going to help you with all your depression. In fact, there have been too many saints in the history of the world who have loved God with everything in them and found his forgiveness and died with none of that stuff coming true for them. So that's not a promise. It's a cherry on top of the cake of his salvation. And that's it. And I know we want the cherry, but we can't make the cherry the cake. Amen? The cake is his forgiveness. The cake is his grace, and he offers it to us here, and it has everything to do with his incarnation. 
And yet, just like any gift that you and I have been given or that we'll give this Christmas, it doesn't have any value until it's what? Received and accepted. I mean, it's an inane illustration. Can you imagine giving a beautiful gift to your wife or to your child or to a dear friend on Christmas and them looking at this beautifully wrapped gift and saying thank you and then they put it under the tree and don't do anything with it? I, I mean, that wouldn't even make sense. It's not even a part of our, our paradigm of how world, the world functions. And yet that's exactly what so many people do with Jesus. I mean, we live in a culture and world today in which, I mean, I can't tell you, it's nauseating. How many times I hear somebody say, I'll say, you know what, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in him. I believe in that. And we treat it so cavalier, and I just think, really, really? Look at how he says it in verse 12 here. This is really rich. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this is really important. I know we're getting tired. We're, we're almost done here, but this is really, really important. Do you remember how I told you a few minutes ago that when John was describing Jesus, he used the noun form of God to us to describe Jesus, not the adjective? It's funny. With this word belief here, he does the opposite. Out of 98 times that John will use the Greek word pistuo, which is the Greek word for faith or belief, he never, ever uses it as a noun. 98 times, which is a lot, he only uses it as a verb. Now, why is that important? Because a verb is an action word. A verb is a response to a noun. So Jesus and God are the nouns, and belief, believing, is our response. And what is this action word to believe? It means to trust. It means to put your full weight upon something. In fact, I say it this way. I was thinking about this a lot this week. I thought really what belief is, is all of me trusting in the fullness of Jesus. That's belief. All of me, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's how we love God. Trusting in the fullness or all of who Jesus is. So belief is not merely intellectual assent. Again, that's why it bothers me when I say to some people, do you believe in Jesus? They go, yeah, 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 I believe. Because I sit there and go, basically what you're saying right now is that you're just giving intellectual credence to a couple of doctrines. Honestly, that's not good enough. There needs to be something happening in our heart and in our very lives that involves submission and following in which we say, he is my all in all. I get it. There's two stated realities out there that somehow have to come together, and he's the only one that brings them together. And all he asks, but it's huge, is for me to believe and trust in him. That's what he's asking for us. And as we established earlier, we're not born into this kind of response. Again, I know some of us say, well, I've believed ever since I can remember. I, I, I get that. Uh, but even if you believed as a very, 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 very little person, <laughs> I hope at some point after that you realize the profundity of what you believed in. Jack and Betty, I picked on Presbyterians earlier, so let me redeem myself. I uh, read a wonderful article uh, in this month's edition of Christianity Today written by a Presbyterian, and she was talking about her testimony and how, you know, she has one of those testimonies where because she was raised in this wonderful Christian home and has believed ever since she could remember, she could never really pinpoint a date or time that she came to believe because Christianity was always a part of her life. But listen to what she says. She says, by the time I was a teenager, however... I knew my sins very well. The old man in my heart displayed a shocking amount of wickedness, 
lusts and selfishness and idolatry. And I realized that if these sins, which I sincerely attempted to fight, were only the shudders of a defeated enemy, if these were not sin set loose, but sin restrained because I was a Christian, I could only imagine the extent of my offense before I came to Christ. She says, as idyllic as my childhood seemed, I knew it was marred by nothing less horrible than my own sin. Well, what's this gal saying? She's realizing the depth and the extent of her salvation, and she's believing in him as a result of that. The point is, is that all of us need to come to a point in our life where we truly understand the nature of spiritual reality, and we need to choose him. It's the response that he wants. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to go to the communion table here in just a minute. And as we prepare for the communion table, both in our venues as well as in our other campuses and here, I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray for all of us. And yet there are some of you here today that are ready to receive Christ, to believe for the very first time. You've come to church maybe for the very first time or you've come for years and you thought you were a believer, but you realize that you've put way too little of your weight <laughs> upon him. And I'm going to help you pray to do that right now. So let every head bowed, let's pray to the Lord as we prepare for communion. Father, I thank you for the clarity of the gospel of John that you saw fit to give us in recorded history of your salvation that tells us who Jesus is the pre-existent creator, eternal incarnate word of God, and that who we are, God, loved by you, certainly never written off, but fallen and separated due to darkness in our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, I pray that as there are some of us here today that are not just celebrating that we've already done this, but realize that we need to receive and believe that, Lord, right where they sit right now, they believe and trust in you. Lord, they admit that they are a sinner in need of grace. They are fallen in need of forgiveness. They have gone their own way, and they now need to come back to you. And so, Lord, in their hearts and their minds right now, they believe and they trust in you. And, Lord, I pray that as anybody would do that today, that they would mark this day as their spiritual birthday, that they would mark this day as the day of the beginning of the rest of their lives, where now through your grace they now become more the people you want them to be as they have come home to you. Lord, for the rest of us, I thank you, God, for the salvation that we have. I pray that this Christmas, in the midst of all of the trappings that we'll be involved in, that, God, you would help us to, to in our heart of hearts, not miss the point of it all, and that is to celebrate the coming of Jesus into this world that is our very salvation. Lord, we go to you in these elements now to continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.